This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at upcase.com. Hey, and welcome to Reboot, where we talk about big career changes. I'm Adarsh Pandit, a developer here at ThoughtBot in San Francisco. This is episode three of season one, and today we'll be talking to Jesse Young, who started as a political volunteer, worked in marketing, and then became a developer after attending a technical boot camp. Hey, how's it going, Jesse? It's good. Our headphones are connected by a cord. No, it is awkward. That's going to make this conversation very interesting. Uh, Tell me what you do. I'm a developer at ThoughtBot. And tell me what that means. That means that I am working on client projects, building web applications for startups and individuals who want to build startups in San Francisco. And what did you do immediately before this? So immediately before I was developer at ThoughtBot, I was an apprentice at ThoughtBot. And before I was an apprentice, I was a student at Dev Bootcamp. And can you tell me about Dev Bootcamp? Yes, I can. So Dev Bootcamp is... I feel like now there are so many boot camps. Everyone's heard of one. Um, when I went to Dev Boot Camp, it was really the only one that I knew of that existed. Uh, and it's a 12-week program for learning web development. They happen to specialize in Ruby and Rails, um, which is convenient because ThoughtBot does as well. But the point is not necessarily to become a Rails expert. It's to become what they call a world-class beginner in programming um, so that you can take that skill set, take your experience from Dev Bootcamp, and apply it to any job in the programming world. That's really interesting. And I think it's a great program. Um, Maybe it might be useful to know how you ended up at Dev Bootcamp. Let's start way back at the beginning. What was your first job? My first job? Uh, Well, my first job in life was being a camp counselor. Where was this camp? In the Redwoods, in the Sierras, I guess, actually. It was a camp I went to as a kid, and then in high school I was a counselor. And then I also was a camp counselor in college, which meant that when I graduated college, I had zero job experience that was not being a camp counselor. And what was being a camp counselor like? Um, It's like you sing a lot, which is really fun. Um, I really like the songs. You do arts and crafts. You play games. You spend your day with kids, which is really fun and really exhausting. Yeah, I can attest to that. Yeah, kids, man. They're exhausting. And what did, I guess, what did you learn from that job in terms of what you were actually applying to other jobs? Hmm, that's a good question. I mean... If anything. Yeah, if anything. No, I think I learned a lot. I mean, being a camp counselor requires a lot of hard work, Like, you're constantly on. And so, actually, maybe what I learned was that I didn't want to be a camp counselor, (laughs) Um, which is good. Like, I do think that career things are sometimes process of elimination. Like, it's not really going towards the one thing you love, but, like, moving away from things you've experienced that you don't like. Mm -hmm. Um, And I did like it, for sure. And I was always so happy when it was over. Uh, I could finally go home and relax and have some alone time and be an adult and not be in kid land all the time. Mm-hmm. When you were a camp counselor, I imagine, did you, well, let me ask, did you believe that you wanted to be a camp counselor forever? No, I know. Okay. No. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't guess that, but yeah. what did you think about in terms of what your future careers would be or could be at that point? At that point, well, so my first real job actually was 
a summer internship, and by real I mean my first non-CAM counselor, non-babysitting job, um, was the summer between my junior and senior years of college. And I decided that summer, I was like, I'm done with this camp counselor thing. Like, I need a real job. I need to try something. You know, just try it out. And I didn't know what to do. And I started looking on Craigslist, as one does. And I found an internship that was actually at my brother-in-law's company. <laughs> um, he worked at a PDA application company. What is a PDA? Um, <laughs> it's like a really bad iPhone mm. with lots of buttons. Like a Palm? Like a Palm Pilot. They made Palm Pilot applications for doctors. And he'd been there for a few years, and I don't know, he, you know, he like I knew he went to an office every day. I had no idea what he did. Turns out he was in product management, and they had a marketing internship. And, you know, I kind of talked to them. They were like, yeah, we've gotten hundreds of applications. We don't want to go through all of these applications. You are a known entity. We would love to hire you. And this is while you're in college? This is while I was in college. So the summer between my junior and senior year. And you were in college in Maine? I was in college in Maine, yes. And so this was a summer internship in San Mateo. Which is very different. And you grew up here in the Bay Area? I grew up here, yeah. So I did have the big advantage of knowing people here. In the tech world. In the tech world, yeah. So I did that internship, and I liked it. I did not love it. Yeah, so I did that. I learned like, kind of the basics of little HTML, CSS, made some surveys. We did a lot of database marketing, so we'd like, do surveys with the doctors and then publish the data as like a point of interest for people to visit the website and kind of get interested in our PDA applications. And so how are you interacting with the data? It's, you mentioned you're writing HTML and CSS at this point, and it sounds like you're doing database work as well. Not database, just really the basic like survey monkey surveys and then finding the data and using my high school statistics background <laughs> to analyze the data and come up with some interesting conclusions based on you know a few hundred responses to a survey. And how did you like it? I like, I mean, I remember liking it. I remember thinking it was kind of boring, honestly. Like, there were cubicles. Like, it was kind of in this business park in San Mateo. And, like, I, would, I was driving this, like, old van. And I was kind of just, like, it was, Wait, like, a little depressing. Why are you driving an old van? <laughs> it's my mom's. Oh, okay. My mom's old van. But I just remember thinking, like, wow, like, working is kind of boring. And, like, it, it was, but it was fun. I don't want to say that it wasn't a positive experience overall. I just, it didn't inspire me. I wasn't, like, I found my thing. Like, this is, this is it. Right. It was kind of like, hmm, okay. So this is sort of what you're mentioning. You're, this is part of the process of ruling things out. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's what it was. Another thing off the list. And, again, I don't want to be overly negative on it, but it was just kind of, like, a, a good learning experience and then, like, happy to go back to school. And what were you studying in school? Uh, philosophy and political science. It's pretty different than marketing. It is pretty different. But you know, it's like, what do you do? I went, I remember my senior year of college, I went to a philosophy conference for undergrads. And most people were either going to get a PhD in philosophy, which that's kind of like training to be a professor, which is a little too close to the camp counselor model for me, <laughs> working with kids. Um, or... People were preparing to be lawyers because the LSAT has a lot, a lot of logic questions. And when you're a philosophy major, you have to take several logic classes. So it's actually being a philosophy major is a really good prep for the LSAT. I never really thought about it, but being an academic or a professor is actually a lot like being a camp counselor. You're all away from home. You're dealing with a lot of kids. And you're having to, to lead the whole, the whole process forward. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
and you know, it's good. I don't know. I liked college, but I think it's more fun being a student than being a professor. Yeah. I went through the same process. I was an academic scientist, and I looked at the job of being a professor and realized it wasn't quite a fit for me either. Mm -hmm. So you're a philosophy and political science major, and you've got some internship stuff going on. Mm -hmm. And then where does it go from there? So I graduated college in 2008. So Barack Obama was running for president the first time. And I was home for the summer, kind of figuring out my life. And I got a call from a friend who... How did I know this friend? Like a kind of like an acquaintance from high school that I think I'd run into one time over the summer. And she told me she'd been on the primary circuit with Obama and she'd gotten really burnt out. And I guess she became re-inspired and was asked to go to New Mexico to help run the campaign operations there. And I guess it was a bunch of people from California somehow ended up running the New Mexico operation. And they were opening a new office, and she asked me if I wanted to help open the new campaign office in Santa Fe. So I went. That's exciting. And what was your role? I was a camp counselor. No, I was, <laughs> I was managing volunteers. You know, I kind of helped initially with the logistics of setting up the office. There were so many amazing volunteers, like people who'd been, some people who were new, but a lot of people who'd volunteered in like 10 presidential elections. Lifers. Lifers. Like coming in, they had posters, they had markers, they do go dumpster diving to get carpet for the office. I mean, it's a, it's all contributions, right? Like we had 30 computers in our office for data entry. That was mm -hmm. a big part of it. And like those were all donated computers. So, you know, I was really just coordinating a bunch of people who were already super motivated and inspired mm -hmm. and just making sure they were in sync with each other. And did you feel prepared for that? No. I mean, I had major imposter syndrome. Actually, I had a lot of nightmares around that time because here I am, like a 21-year-old managing all of these 50-year-olds. And I certainly didn't think that I was better or smarter than them. I just was the person whose job it was to do that. And, you know, when I got pushed back, I would get very nervous because I knew that I needed to keep things in line and we need to have certain rules. And I was asked to do various things like, you know, don't give out stickers to people who don't volunteer and all these like kind of, in retrospect, silly rules. Um, but I tried to enforce them. And so I felt like I was this imposter manager and like I had no idea what I was doing. It sounds remarkably actually like the skills you might need to be a camp counselor. <laughs> yes. I mean, you're, yeah. you're, you're kind of organizing activities. You're getting everybody rowing in the right direction. Maybe sometimes very literally, sometimes, you know, in this case, figuratively. But it makes sense from an external perspective that you'd be ready in, to kind of organize all these people running around in all these different directions. Yeah. I think I was ready. And I think, you know, part of it, like I mentioned before, singing songs so we didn't have any songs in the campaign, but there were definitely things like, I'm trying to think about what's similar. I don't know, it's like the cheering, the rallies, like just getting really excited about things and getting people together. That was definitely a similar feeling. Just a really big excitement and a feeling of belonging, right? Like at camp, it's like, we belong here. This is our camp. We're, you know, team squirrel or whatever. And definitely on the campaign, it was like, we were all in this together, you know, working 24-7 and just, like, extremely excited. And then what happened with the election? 
So we lost now. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there was a real fear of that. Of course. It was, you know, we we didn't know. And and they did a very good job of keeping us scared about that and saying, you know, we're behind and this thing is happening and this thing is happening. But, of course, it was a landslide. You know, Obama did awesome. And everyone was super pumped and so excited. And then post-campaign depression set in for everyone and we were all like what do we do now so what actually happens to the campaign workers immediately afterwards my assumption was people get sucked into the government somehow so yes and no i mean the challenge with the obama campaign is that there was just so much grassroots support and so many people excited and especially young people that the administration couldn't possibly find positions for all of them Um, and in addition at the low level like the high-level appointments happen first. So even if there was room for you, and I think in the end, anyone who really wanted to make it to D.C. made it to D.C. But even, it was a waiting time, right? Because first he has to appoint, you know, the head of whatever, and then that person appoints the person below them, below them, below them, and like 30 levels down would be me. Right. And so I was told by people higher up, but they were like, yeah, definitely come to D.C. I mean, like, I had a ticket to the inaugural balls. Like, definitely come to inauguration, but, like, don't plan on moving there and having a job within three to six months. Like, that's not going to happen for you. Was that something that you wanted? I mean, at at that time, very much, yeah. I would have loved that. I mean, just partially to be part of the administration, you know, that would have been amazing, but also just because I'd met so many amazing people in Santa Fe and I wanted to go and be with all of them um, and work with them and continue to build on the momentum that we'd started building in Santa Fe. And did you move to D.C.? I did not. Did you go to the inaugural ball? I did. That's exciting. Yes. That was very exciting. No, I did not move. I mean, because what I was seeing from my friends was that the people who did move to D.C. were having a hard time. Um, some people were able to figure it out, but I... I had the tech connections from back home. I had no connections in D.C. aside from my, you know, 20 counterparts from Santa Fe. Mm -hmm. And like all industries, politics is very much about who you know. And I did not know anyone. And so what happened? So as one does, I moved to Portland. Um, (laughs) Portland, Oregon. (laughs) When you have no plan, (laughs) go to to Portland. Yes. I moved to Portland. I did a lot of yoga for a while and drank coffee, really delicious coffee for very little money, and enjoyed the rainy weather and basically applied to jobs for a few months. I worked, did some like nonprofit stuff. I was volunteering. I was just like networking up a storm and trying to meet people. But I ended up getting, like the first opportunity I got was actually in Boston because along the theme of like, who do you know? Because I went to college in Maine, I knew a lot of people in Massachusetts. It's very close to Maine. And a friend of mine had interned for Senator Kennedy there, and so she was able to help me get an internship at Senator Kennedy's office in Boston. Which Kennedy? Senator Ted. Ted. Edward Ted Kennedy? Edward Ted Kennedy, yeah. it's He was kind of very ill at that point, so mm. I actually never met him like it was kind of this interesting time where everyone kind of knew he wasn't doing well but he was still in office and so that was I don't know I feel like the Senator Kennedy thing was something that seemed like it was gonna be very exciting it was like my ticket into politics Mm -hmm. and I got there and it was just like there was nothing going on in the office it was like paper shuffling what kind of paper shuffling well mostly what would happen is that 
a, a constituents would call and I would pick up the phone and I would listen to them talk about really sad things and how they wanted Senator Kennedy to help them. And then I would tell them that I would tell him and then I would hang up. <laughs> That's <laughs> unfortunate. That was basically my job. Yeah. So I was working for the legislative aid in like healthcare. So the internship I had was in healthcare. I kind of was like, I guess I'm interested in healthcare policy. So I was working in that department, which was really cool um, because Senator Kennedy was such a champion of healthcare reform. So he did get a lot of supporters also calling saying, hey, like, I'm so happy about all you've done for us. I know you're really trying. And so I also got some positive calls. Must be nice. Yeah. So you show up and not much is going on. Mm -hmm. And how are you doing at that point? I was okay. I mean, I I was walking around Boston. It was like an unpaid internship, right? So I was walking around Boston, actually walking around Brookline, for those who know Boston, trying to get a waitressing job, even though I've never had a job in a restaurant. So I wasn't a very good candidate. I guess I would say I was unqualified to be a waitress. So I was mostly doing that and feeling kind of down on my working life. So here is something that I left out from before. So the summer after college, I had driven across country. I was at home, like, doing odd jobs, trying to figure out my life. And before I got this amazing call from my friend Samantha to go to New Mexico, I applied for a lot of jobs on Craigslist, as you do. Yes, one does. So I did that, and I actually had one pretty promising opportunity in Boston. Uh, it was for a company called Surma. They were building a social network for physicians, so similar to, like, similar audience to my marketing internship, and it was a marketing position. And they wanted me to pay my own way out to Boston for an interview, and then, like, the next day I got this call to go to New Mexico, so I emailed them, and I was like, hey, I'm, you know, I would go out there. It sounds exciting, but I got this other great opportunity. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Anyways... So a month into living in Boston, I'm interning at Senator Kennedy's and waiting for the green line to go into work with my brand new iPhone 3. So excited to have an iPhone. It's probably <laughs> scanning Twitter or something. Uh, and I get a call from a Boston number, which was crazy because I knew like two people in Boston. I pick it up and it's, it's Sermo. The person who had filled the position that they had previously been trying to fill had already left the company. So this is like six months later. And they were wondering if I happened to still be in the market since it hadn't worked out last time. And, you know, I was like, well, not only am I in the market, I actually live in Boston now. So, you know, a week later, went in and interviewed. It was a pretty frightening to interview. Um, it was so exciting. I mean, it was, there were dogs in the office. There were no cubicles. They catered every meal. There was a meeting room where instead of chairs, there were stationary bicycles, so you could bicycle in your meeting. Wow. Um, that it sounds was, so tech. Yeah, it was like a tech. And I like had not, you know, my one exposure to, to tech up front was, had been my like San Mateo cubicle job. Mm -hmm. And so this was just like the most exciting thing ever. I think this is interesting. The, the concept of the cubicle has come up a couple times, and the fact that people viewed software development and technology as a very stuffy, white-collar job prior to, like, 2008. Yeah. I mean, and I don't even know if, if white-collar... Like, I just thought, like, boring. I don't know. I wasn't even exposed. I mean, in the company that I'd interned at was pretty large, so the software... I don't even know where the developers were. They are probably, like, in a different building. Like, I never met them. That's ever. interesting. Yeah. And did you think at this point, 
And you haven't written any software at this point. You haven't really thought about being a developer yet. Not not as for a second. No. And then, well, how did Sermo work out? So, you know, much to my surprise, I got the job at Sermo. They were kind of like, "Your experience is relevant," and you know, we like you. Like, great. We have a bunch of camp kids. We want you to <laughs> supervise. <laughs> and I was just, oh my gosh, I was so over the moon at that opportunity. I was like, not only is it, it's like a real job. Like, I have a salary. And there's food. It was just, I remember telling my friends in Boston, and they, like, didn't think it was real. They were like, are you sure this isn't, like, a front for something, and they're trying to, like, steal your identity? Some friends. Yeah. Well, just, because it was just, you know, it was a different time. You know, 2008, the economy, like, I graduated from college right when everything went down the drain. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I had some friends that had good jobs, but most people I know, even really smart, really talented, really hardworking people, just, like, were not able to get... Uh, full-time jobs or what I would say is like a job leading to a career for like at least a year or two. So I just felt so lucky to have that job mm-hmm. and, um, or any job or any job. I mean, really, yeah, I would have been happy to be a waitress, but I was underqualified for that. <laughs> I was not qualified. Did you apply to be a waitress? Oh yeah. I would, I was walking into restaurants all over Brookline, just asking for applications and filling them out and never hearing anything. It was like the most thrilling things ever happened to me. Yeah, so I took the Sermo job. I left Senator Kennedy's office. I started at Sermo, mostly doing email marketing, um, some social media marketing. I got to do that, like, famous, like, I feel like back then people would always talk about, like, CEOs who don't know about Twitter. Like, our CEO did not know about Twitter. Like, I remember going into a meeting with him and being so nervous, and I had to show him the Twitter and show him about how when I searched our name, like, results showed up for... Sermo a few times, like a few people in 2008 mm-hmm. or 2009, I guess, had tweeted about Sermo. He was like, wow, this is interesting. Yeah, I guess we should like get on this. So I got to pioneer our social media presence, which is fun. That's exciting. Yeah. It was. Yeah. And, and in addition, this is where Rails enters my life. So Sermo, I always mess this up. I think they were on .NET. They were on something old, something... I can't remember what they were on. Whatever they were using, they were moving to Rails. And the company was completely behind this. They were hosting the Boston RB meetup every week. And every meeting, I was just hearing about this Rails thing. Um, and I remember, like, visualizing, like, a train. Like, okay, we're putting the website on a train. <laughs> like, it's going to be faster. Like, that's what they kept saying. Like, it'll be faster. It'll be better. And it was, like, every meeting, every company-wide meeting was an update on, like, what percentage are we moved over to Rails? So that was the first time I heard about Rails, and the first time I, like, kind of, like, started to get a little bit curious about what this Rails thing was. It is, in fact, not to do with trains. It is, yes. Although I think everybody assumes it is. And every now and again, I don't know if you get this when you're Googling Rails questions and bugs, sometimes you'll get railroad answers. No, but I do frequently just Google the word capybara, and then I'm like, oh, wait, this is not just <laughs> this a web testing little animal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I was hearing about Rails, and I, that was, I mean, even though it wasn't my first tech job, it was really my first exposure, because it was relatively small, like 80 people, my first, first exposure to, like, the entire stack of being at a tech company. Um, so I remember we had brown bag lunches, like one of my first weeks, we had a brown bag lunch on user stories. And <laughs> I remember I went and I was like so excited to hear stories about our users. 
And then they like busted out Pivotal Tracker and were like, hello, we are going to discuss like the elements of a successful Pivotal Tracker story. I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, I was learning the vocab for sure. Right. <laughs> Slowly but surely. And are you, at this point, are you imagining a career ahead of you in, in marketing? Yes. I mean, yes and no. I think I enjoyed that job mostly because I really like people that I worked with. Like, I'm still really close with my manager from that time. And so we had a lot of fun. But it was really more, and I think similar to the Obama campaign, like, like I really love the people there. The work pace was not sustainable at all. Um, but I would have worked with those people that I was with in Santa Fe forever. I felt that way about Boston. Like, I could have worked with those people in a lot of different contexts. So, I don't know. I guess I wasn't really sure what I was going to do with my life. I was just really happy to be employed. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. And then what happens next? I worked there for about a year, and I learned a lot. That's where I really got more into Like, I was using Dreamweaver to make HTML emails. Of course you were. Yeah. There were so many divs in my emails. <laughs> it was like div, 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 div. Non-breakable space, non-breakable space. Um, and so I was learning a little more HTML and CSS. I didn't really see any Rails code, but I did, because the marketing site, I believe, was also hosted on Rails, I did, like, deploy the site. Like, that's the first time I ever opened up Terminal, and then the developer, like, wrote out instructions in a text file of, like, how I could, like, make a change and then, like, deploy it with a code. And I remember it was very frightening, Um, but I think I only had rights to staging. So I think I would just deploy to staging and then, like, ping someone and say, like, hey, can you deploy to production? Um, so I learned a lot and it was good. And then I got laid off. So that's where it ended. Uh, we had big layoffs like about a year after I started and it was like so dramatic. I don't know if you've been laid off before. It's like the most dramatic thing ever because yeah. it's like D-Day. Like right. <laughs> everyone comes in and they're like, who is it? Like what's going to happen? Right. And of course it's like a rumor mill too. Like obviously I think the smart companies tell everyone before it becomes a rumor, but like, I don't think that ever really happens. So it's like someone found out, like some VP told some manager and some manager told my manager and my manager told me and like immediately we were all just like in conference rooms, like editing our resumes rather than working. Right. (laughs) Um, And then they kind of announced people were going to get laid off and they laid off like half of the company. Wow. Yeah. It was really dramatic. It was crazy. And, um, but in the end, it was awesome, actually, because my manager, who was this awesome guy, was like, hey, when I was your age, I got laid off, and I took the summer off, and it was super fun. And now I have two kids, and I can't do that, so you should. And I was like, yeah, okay. That's good advice. Solid advice. So I did that. I mean, we had three months of severance. I moved down to South America for six months. Where in South America? In Chile. That's exciting. Yeah. Wait, during our summer? No, during our winter. It was actually, like, the worst timing. (laughs) Like, I got laid off right before Christmas, and then I went down there, and then it was kind of like the tail end of their summer, and so I had two winters in a row. So that wasn't awesome. But being there was awesome. Like, I think my initial reaction was, get another job, get another job. And, like, I started interviewing and sending out my resume, and then the thought of moving to South America made me worried because I was like, oh, no, I'm not going to get promoted. I'm not going to be moving ahead in, like, the corporate ladder and, like, I'm going to miss out. And then I went away for six months and came back and it's like, it was one of the best decisions I've ever made. Why? Because I had never lived abroad. I mean, I never, I've traveled a bit, but I never lived abroad. And it was just, 
you gain such a different perspective on everything. Mm-hmm. And like, I think you realize as you get older that experiences like that become harder and harder to have as you get older. Like oh, yeah. it's like, you can't just move. Like even now it's only been five years since then, but I still feel like oh, I can't just move. Like I have all this furniture and like, I have a job I like and you know it's just like those those opportunities are few and far between and I think at the time I was 23 and it felt like oh I'll just have you know I can move to Chile next year but it's like no I wouldn't have I would have gotten another job and been promoted and then like oh I'm almost getting a promotion I shouldn't leave now and then like soon enough you're retired right moving to Florida how did you pick Chile um I picked Chile because my boyfriend wanted to move there too (laughs) It's a good reason. That's a good reason, yeah. So he had traveled all over South America, and based on his survey of all of the countries, he felt like that was the most stable and, like, livable. Like, Santiago is a very livable city. It's mm-hmm. pretty inexpensive. It's safe. It's modern. They have, like, a modern subway. Startup Chile was just getting going then, so there were some tech people around. But also, you know, his plan was kind of just to learn Spanish, and that's pretty much what I did most of the time I was there. I was learning Spanish and making a little bit of money on the side by teaching English. Sounds like a sweet gig. It was awesome. So then you come back. How did you decide to come back? It was just, I've done six months and now I'm done, or time to come back to the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, I think I started to get some of this. Like, you asked before, did I see a career of myself in marketing? And, like, I don't know if I exactly did it, but at least I felt like I was on my way to figuring out a career. Um, Whereas when I was in Chile teaching English, like, I was back to camp counselor mode. (laughs) Like, I was teaching English to children frequently. So I was, like, basically a glorified babysitter. And, you know, that didn't feel like I was moving towards something. I wasn't dreaming of starting my own English teaching school or anything. And from I met a fair number of expats there. And it's not easy if you're not fluent in Spanish to get a job that's not teaching English. So it just seemed like I needed to move back to the U.S. to really move forward in my career planning and career ambitions. And where did you move back to? Portland? No, to San Francisco. Huh. It was exciting. I'd actually never lived in San Francisco. I mean, I grew up in the Bay Area, but I'd never lived in San Francisco proper. So that was a really exciting transition. Yeah, that was 2010. Moved back August 2010. But I did a lot of career brainstorming first. What does that mean? Um, so I actually, before I was looking at my wiki page, because I had a, wi- a personal wiki. Of course you did. Yeah. Did you? How did you put a wiki page together? Um, Is this on Wikipedia, or you put it together your own wiki host? On PB Works. It's like you can build your own wiki. Oh, right. Yeah like password protected it's like evernote but like Mm -hmm. on a web page probably evernote's on a web page too i don't know anyways (laughs) it's like how i kept information you know in one place um and back then i was using it to store a lot of like job stuff like close on google docs or something so anyways i did some career brainstorming about like what i'd done what i didn't like what i did like who i knew what kind of industries i should think about and really landed on, like, I'll probably just work in marketing and tech again. <laughs> so was this was the purpose of this exercise to figure out your next step mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and decide sort of where do I go from here? Yes. Those are interesting questions, too. What did I like? What did I not like? And who do I know? I don't think people focus on who they know as much as the, what, I like this or I like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, because... I think the what I, who I knew question was really relevant. And in my own experience, I'd seen, think about the jobs I'd had at this point. Camp counselor, this is like a camp where I knew all the counselors because I'd been a camper. Internship, my brother-in-law worked there. 
Obama campaign friend from high school gave me a call. Sermo, like, I had applied online, but they also, there was some connection between their CEO and the CEO of my, the company I interned at. So it's like, they probably had a reference check on me. So every job I'd had had been through a connection. So I kind of knew that like, oh, that's how the world works, I guess. Yeah, I feel like it's definitely true for all of the opportunities I've had. And I feel like that's true for most people. And I think that's where people have a bad interpretation of networking. But really networking is just setting you up for those kinds of, oh, I know a guy or I know a girl who works here or there and connecting you to other opportunities that way. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it's, and even more practically, it's like, how do you know what opportunities are out there, right? Like, how does, how would someone know that, like, ThoughtBot is hiring in San Francisco? Like, we don't, I don't tweet every day, like, come work at ThoughtBot. But if I meet an awesome web developer, I'll say, hey, you know, we're hiring, come work with us. It's one of those things where just, like, the opportunities available in the world aren't published in one nice central location. Yeah, or even what those opportunities are like. What does it mean to be a web developer or a designer or any job? It's hard to even know what those jobs are, what they're like, before you even meet someone and talk to them and ask them what their job is like. Yeah. No, it's true. And, 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 you know, even though I think I ended up in a place where I guess the conclusion was I had worked at these, like, medically related tech companies because I'd originally thought I was interested in healthcare, and then I was moving more in, like, the tech direction where the healthcare piece became less relevant. Um, so I ended up saying, okay, you know, tech marketing. But I also had a lot of ideas like, oh, maybe I should do – like we had a an, a friend or a friend's parent who does – like designs the storefronts in airports. And it's like that's kind of interesting. Like I'm a very organized person and like I think a lot about like spatial alignment. Like maybe that would be a good job for me, a good career for me. Yeah, there's one where I didn't know that was a job. Yeah. Oh, well, Yeah. Or at the time I read the book, um, Why We Buy by Paco Underhill. He's like the famous like shopping sociologists and he tells stores like how to lay out all the products so that people are like primed to buy things. And like that was just fascinating. I was like, oh, I'd love to do that kind of thing. So just I had a lot of wild ideas for sure. Well, it sounds like a helpful exercise. And so you landed, even though you went through this exercise and thought through pretty systematically where you should go next, you ended up in tech marketing again. I did. I mean, and because when I looked at who I knew, I'm from the Bay Area. And so most of the adults I knew, like adults who were beyond the phase of I'm 23 and still trying to figure my life out, worked in tech. Um, so that was kind of who I knew. Uh, and so I knew that that's where I had the most connections. In addition to like looking at your own experience, right? Because experience is important as well. At that point in time, I was a much more qualified um, marketing manager than product manager because I had two real jobs as, you know, marketing associate. So I had some experience. So you come back to the Bay Area mm-hmm. and then? So I interviewed around a bunch of different companies in SOMA. Yeah, I can't, I just, you know, talking to a lot of people, meeting with people, trying everything out and end up in a place where I'm really doing like freelance marketing um, because at that time, it seemed like a lot of people wanted to hire like a third of a marketing person, but not a full marketing person. And so I thought, hey, I'll give that a try and started doing some marketing on the side. And then I also went to my first RailsBridge workshop, um, actually almost right after we got back from Chile. 
Now, how did you get introduced to Railsbridge, and, and why did that seem like an appealing thing to do? So, you know, really, it's funny, because I don't know why it was appealing. <laughs> like, when I look back, I can't remember why. I think that it's because at Sermo, all the developers are on one side of the room, and everyone else on the other side. And I remember thinking, like, ugh, they think they're so smart over there. Like, I could probably do what they're doing. Like, they're just sitting over there, and, like, I know I don't understand it, but I probably could. And, like, I had this weird pride issue. And then I had a friend in the Bay Area, Maria, and she was taking a Ruby class through Blazing Cloud. And Blazing Cloud was run by Sarah Allen, who was one of the co-founders of RailsBridge. So, like, the students in the class were volunteering as teachers, basically. And Maria was like, hey, you should come. And I was like, you know, actually, that would be great. Like, I know about Rails. It's how you play website on a train. <laughs> Super great. <laughs> so I went to RailsBridge, and I guess I would love to say that I fell in love that moment. But I remember thinking, like, wow, this is just so confusing. Like, I went and we did terminal and I remember like in the instructions I was so confused because I never knew if I should put my code in the terminal or my code in TextMate. <laughs> like I didn't know. Yeah, that's a reasonable thing to not know. Yeah. It was so confusing. So that was my first lukewarm experience <laughs> with Rails. <laughs> or I guess my second. My first hands on experience. So I kind of did RailsBridge like I was at that I started going to RailsBridge like in August and I think I went to one almost every month for the next year or like I went like every two months and then I started going more frequently for like the next year in parallel with my marketing consulting I was doing why keep going if you had a late form experience you know I don't I honestly I don't know I think it's because well here's what it is actually I do have memory of this because I've talked about this at RailsBridge before. So the first time I went, I was super confused. And they have RailsBridge, if you haven't been, it's like the Friday night's called Install Fest, and, like, you install RVM and, like, the most current Ruby version via RVM, and then you also just, like, get your environment set up um, so that the next day you don't have all the setup issues. So the first time, I remember, basically, I just, like, handed my laptop to somebody, some, you know, developer guy, and he just, like, punched a bunch of numbers in and, like, did a bunch of crazy stuff. And then my computer was working, and I went home and was ready for the workshop. The second time, I had a different computer, and I went to go do the install fest, and I had a gem install issue. And by some miracle, I was able to, like, understand the error trace I was seeing in Terminal when this gem install wasn't working. And I was able to troubleshoot it myself, and, like, troubleshooting. And it was something really small, like, I think I didn't have Bundler or something. Like, I had to do gem install Bundler and then Bundle. But, like, that little thing of having figured it out, I was like, wow, like, I'm really learning. Like, last month I couldn't do this, and this mm -hmm. month I can. And I think I had that experience, like, a little more each time I went until a year into it, like, I was teaching RailsBridge. And to be clear, it's not because I suddenly was a Rails genius. It's because I had done the curriculum so many times that I'd seen every problem that mm. could happen. And so I was, like, helping others debug their setups and figure out. Like, I couldn't explain what an instance variable was. I could just know, like, you have to put the at in front <laughs> of this thing or it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. It was really exciting. And that's not easy to do. I mean, I think... It's it takes some persistence and obviously, but it also I think that that I had a similar experience where you get that 
endorphin rush, and that's sort of what allows it to be addictive, is you get a little bit further each time, and you feel more and more capable like you can do it. Yeah. It's a complete endorphin rush. You're right. Like, you get that feeling. You're just like, oh, my gosh. Like, and, and certainly there were equally as many times where it was just horribly frustrating. Like, I had a Heroku issue once for two weeks. I mean, not two weeks straight. Like, I had a job. But, like, every evening I'd go home and try to debug it. And I was doing, like, crazy stuff with the asset pipeline because, like, when you Google Heroku problems, it's always, like, you get Heroku asset pipeline results. So I thought, I was like, like, I'm sure it's the asset pipeline. And, like, really was that, like, my control action was completely bonkers and, like, made no sense. But there were a lot of really frustrating times, but I would just, like, get just enough a glimpse of, like, the good side that I kept with it. As you're doing all of this, are you thinking about a life as a developer? Does it seem like something you can do? Or is it just more like a hobby or fun thing? You know, it's interesting. I don't know if it did. I'm trying to think of what happened. So this was 2010. Between 2010 and 2011, it was just a hobby, I think. It was just like, this is what I do on the weekend. I learn Rails. I don't know why I like doing that, but I did. And then for between 2011 and 2012... I was really starting to think more, like, you know, now I'm in my third marketing job. I'm like, okay, so I'm doing all this marketing. I'm getting a lot of experience. Like, I think there's a quote somewhere, like, be careful what you get good at. You'll have to do it a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of how I started to feel like, oh, my gosh, I'm becoming this, like, experienced marketing person. And, like, I don't know if I like marketing. (laughs) Like, I certainly couldn't envision myself being, like, a 40-year-old working woman and going into my marketing job and feeling really fulfilled or something. Like, Mm -hmm. I couldn't. Like, I was fine at the time, but I wasn't I wasn't dreaming about the next step. I wasn't trying to move forward. So I think that as that conversation in my head became more real, I started to get more serious about the, the Rails thing because I realized that that was fun and I could see so much opportunity for growth in that direction. And what did getting serious about it mean? So I told you I'd been doing marketing consulting. So I was working for various startups, but not as an employee, as a contractor. And I cut back my hours. Uh, So starting in, I guess, mid-2011, I cut back my hours. So every Monday, Friday was like programming day for Jesse. I had two investment days a week. Um, So I have one now at ThoughtBot, but I had two then. And I would just sit down semi-successfully with a book and try to learn. So like I went through an entire HTML and CSS book. I felt like I learned by doing with HTML and CSS, but I'd never gotten like the basics down. Did you do the head first Kathy Sierra book? Love the book. Love head first. Yeah, I did that. And then I did some, like I did a lot of jumping around and I went to a lot of meetups. This is something I did a lot. By the way, I should mention that uh, I'll add the notes to the, a link to the Kathy Sierra book in the show notes. Yeah, it's good. It's real good. Um, And... I was going to tons of meetups. I was going to like every programming meetup in the world because pe- people, programmers love to talk about programming. So you could just go and like for me, it was so fun just to talk about them and be like, I'm interested in learning. And like everyone offers to teach you and tells you about a great book or, you know, something you should learn. So I did a lot of like, I guess, networking with programmers during that time and just like a lot of meetups. And Did you do that with some purpose or, I mean... That is probably the most effective way to get into a new industry is to meet people and network. Did it seem like a very deliberate thing or was it more, I just kind of want to get to know people? Well, I think, so I guess the original idea was I was going to keep doing marketing consulting and get a programming internship. 
And so I guess I was meeting people trying to see if there were internship opportunities. And so I actually finally did come by one opportunity. It was a friend from RailsBridge. I think I had met her at the very first RailsBridge, Rachel Myers. And she worked at ModCloth. And she, I don't know if she said ModCloth. Well, anyways, <laughs> it doesn't matter. I didn't get the job. I interviewed there and um, I got so nervous. It was for like a Rails internship. And they were mostly, I think, interviewing like computer science undergrads. And I was like, well, you know, I know marketing. I worked at tech companies. Like, I'm going to do great in this interview. I go in and they're like, here's a Ruby array. Please iterate through this array and add one to each item. And I like froze. I was like, what? I can't do that. Like, what are you? And I knew it was one of those things where if I had been looking at my Chris Pine book, I could have done it. Chris Pine book, another good book. Yeah, I'll add that in the show notes also. Yeah, learn to program. Uh, if I'd been looking, if I'd been with Chris Pine, I could have done it, but I was just with myself and I like, couldn't even remember the syntax for an array, you know, like I didn't know if it was square braces or curly braces and I just totally flunked, which I think fired me up because I was like, okay, like I need to do better. Mm. Like I need to move, like I need to get an internship and like, I obviously am not ready. Like I need to get ready for this. So that's when I started doing the two days a week of just studying and getting more serious about my commitment. But again, like I can't, it's, it's just funny to look back on these things now because I don't know how confident I was that I could really make the transition at the time. Why not? It just seems so far away, mm-hmm. you know, like talking to developers about developer things. It's like, I felt like I knew nothing. Like there's this, this huge vocabulary you need to do anything in web development. And like, I didn't know, like, I remember really early on, like people would say things like bash and I'd be like, bash. And then I'd be like, Oh, like the dollar sign thing. (laughs) Like there was like so many things like that where it's like, it's so basic, you know, but I just did not have the vocabulary. And it took me a really long time to develop it. Did you know anybody or had heard stories about anyone who had done what you were trying to do? Not really. Um, my friend Rachel, the one who worked at ModCloth at the time, kind of, she, I think she did her master's in philosophy. So we had like a similar educational background. Um, but then she had interned, I think, for like six months or something at Blazing Cloud. Um, and then before she got her first kind of full-time gig and... I think I just thought maybe she was, like, a lot smarter than me or something. Like, I was like, oh, Rachel, like, she did it, but, like, I don't know if I can do it. Like, she's really smart. I don't know. And then how did you end up at Dev Bootcamp? So I heard through one of my various Ruby mailing lists that uh, Living Social, which was at the time growing, like, crazy in D.C., um, had started a program called Hungry Academy where they were going to train, like, 30 developers at a time like I don't not novices but you know junior junior people so that they could grow their engineering team faster and it was a six-month program wasn't it I think it was six months and it was paid it was like not an amazing salary but like a legit it's like a job where you just learn for six months and then when you graduate like if you do well in the course you get a job at living social as a developer and so I applied for that. It was a pretty long interview. You had to make a video. And I ended up getting through the first round. 
and the second round. And then the third round was they would fly you to D.C. to interview. And I was so excited. I didn't want to move to D.C., by the way. Like, I was, I loved San Francisco, but I just was like, this sounds like too good to pass up. Like, I can't, you know, I can't believe they want to pay me to learn for six months. So I flew to D.C. I was so pumped. I went through the interview. I thought I killed it. And I got home, and I, like, had met a friend there. And she, like, emailed me, like, someone else who had applied. And she emailed me. I was like, I got in, I got in. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't wait. Like, I think I'm going to get in. And I didn't get in. Oh. And I was so sad. I was just like, oh, like, was this my last chance? Like, was I, like, first I had the internship. And then I had Hungry Academy. And, like, I struck, I struck out twice. So I was like, oh, like, is there a third? Am I going to get a third option? <laughs> like, and so I remember, like, desperately emailing the people that were running the program and just saying, like, I don't think I hoped they would reverse their decision. I just wanted to know kind of why they thought I wasn't ready. Because I felt like I'd been learning for so long, like I was bound to be the most experienced person applying. And, you know, they weren't able to, probably for HR reasons, tell me why I couldn't, that I didn't get in. But they did say, hey, but there's a program kind of similar to this starting up in San Francisco. Like, they actually started this week. It's called Dev Bootcamp. And I was like, oh, what? And so... I went on the Dev Bootcamp website. They had, in fact, started that week, their first cohort. And I emailed Sharif, the founder, and was like, hey, I want to come check out your school. And so I, I, I just went into Dev Bootcamp in week two of cohort one and like sat in on a talk they were having. Uh, and I loved it. It was awesome. It was just like camp. <laughs> Full circle. <laughs> but I was the student. <laughs> right. It was just like a room full of adults who were really excited. Uh, I remember Roy Bahat was giving a talk. He was at the time at IGN Gaming Company. And he was there because he had taught himself some Ruby. And he was just talking about how important. He's one of those people who's in the camp of like learning to code is a life skill. And he was kind of talking to them to get them excited about how like, wow, this really accomplished CEO is also learning Ruby. Like, like you know, anyone can do it. It's great. And everyone was just so excited, so enthusiastic. And, like, I was finally meeting people like me. Like, I think in the RailsBridge crowd, I was getting to be more senior, right? So I felt like there was there were developers, and then there were complete novices, and, like, there weren't many people like me. And this was a room full of people just like me. Mm. And I was just so excited. I immediately applied and decided to go. That's exciting. And how did it go? It went really well. I mean, it was... I will say almost, like, I had second thoughts. Like, I was kind of like, should I really do this? Like, am I going to get a job? But then I was like, whatever. If I don't try, you know, I think it's very similar to the Chile experience. Like, how many opportunities do you get to just do some, like, amazing program for three months with really cool people and, like, learn a ton? Was the cost a concern? The co- Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of money, $10,000. I think now it's even more. Mm-hmm. I think then... It was maybe, I paid like nine or something. And yeah, it's expensive. And it's especially expensive if you consider the fact that like there's no way you can work while you do it. Like mm-hmm. I've had some people email me and be like, do you think I could work part time while I'm at Dev Bootcamp? And I'm like, no way. Yeah, it's like a 12 to 24 hour a day thing. Oh yeah, it's really intense. So, you know, if you do the math, it's like, okay, so I'm not making, I'm paying rent in San Francisco. I'm not making a dime and I'm spending $10,000. And then I'm probably going to need a few months to get a job. Like, wow, that's that's not cheap. Mm-hmm. But I did it. 
you know, and at the time we had no idea if the first cohort was going to get jobs and they kind of all did like right away. So we were all really excited. We were like, Oh, this is going to be awesome. Like it's going to work out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but we didn't know that till after we'd already started. So yeah, dev bootcamp was amazing. I think the number one reason why I really enjoy dev bootcamp is they really focus on the full person. Well, there are two things. Okay. One the things you learn at Dev Bootcamp, you can learn from a computer. Like, all of the information, like, if they open source their curriculum, I don't think it would make their school less relevant. Like, mm-hmm. the content's not amazing. It's just basic Ruby and, like, Ruby in the scale of programming languages is pretty easy to learn. But it gives you so much motivation to be there because you are around other people who are really excited. And when you get stuck, they, like, help you get out of it and help you kind of stay focused. So that's one thing. The second thing is that, like, one of the biggest challenges in learning to program is the feeling of, like, I don't know if I can do this. Like, I'm not the kind of person that can do this. And they really help you realize that that's, like, not true for anybody. Like, anybody can learn this stuff. I don't know where this idea that, like, being a programmer is, like, this amazing skill set that only geniuses can have came from. But, like, people do have that feeling. I think I had that feeling. And it's, like, it couldn't be less true the most like accessible thing it just requires persistence so they work with you a lot on that like they definitely understand that everybody entering dev bootcamp has that feeling and they make sure that you realize that you're that everyone else is also having that feeling and like help you work through that so that was awesome that is awesome the one thing i've heard a lot as i've talked to people who do career changes like this is that having other people who are in the same situation drastically increases your chance of getting to wherever you want to go because you have a shared experience you have other people who can give you advice and you have other reference points so that you can know what's normal what's not what's possible what's not possible so then how does i think at this point now i'm aware of what actually happens but i'll pretend i don't know so then what happens at the end of dev bootcamp so at the end of dev bootcamp I don't think this is the case anymore, but back then we had what's called like a hiring day where a bunch of companies that like sign up somewhere show up and do like mini interviews with everyone. And so there were 30 students in my class and I think 70 companies signed up. And so we had like five minutes with each company. We didn't even have time to meet all the companies, but like we stayed at a computer and then the companies came around and like we talked to everyone for like five minutes. So I thought that was there. It was this random guy. I can't remember <laughs> who it was. Yeah, so I was there and <laughs> it was exhausting. It was like, it's like speed dating and you run from person to person. And what I realized about the cohort is that there's a gigantic amount of variation among the people who were there um, That in terms of not just skill, but life experience and professionalism and, and all of that stuff. But it's clear that everybody there is incredibly motivated and has pushed themselves really hard to get to where they are. Yeah. it's. I mean, it's a pretty scary thing, that interview day, because you're sitting there with people who you've been on the same team as for, like, three months, and all of a sudden it's like, okay, guys. <laughs> like, now you're all competing for the same jobs. Good luck. Well, I never thought about that. That must be weird. It's really weird. I mean, and it's it's hard because it's a really supportive environment, but obviously the minute somebody else gets a job offer, you're sitting there thinking, like, oh, are they better than me? Like, am I the worst one in the class? Like, all the thoughts that they train you not to have, like, immediately come 
flying into your brain. But yeah, so hiring day was crazy. I remember them saying before hiring day that ThoughtBot, like I I knew I'd used ThoughtBot gems, but mostly the CEO of Pivotal had come and spoken to us. So in my mind, Pivotal was like the consulting company that existed in the world. And of course, they had a big office in San Francisco. At the time, ThoughtBot did not have an office in San Francisco. So I remember like right before interviews, they were like, yeah, and ThoughtBot's going to be here. Like, they're really great. Like, they're like, they're like pivotal. It's like, whoa, oh my God. They're like pivotal. They must be so amazing. So yeah. So I remember being like, whoa, ThoughtBot, that's cool. And, and I ended up interviewing beyond the five minutes mm-hmm. on another day. Um, I believe with Dan Croak, he had just moved here from Boston, from the Boston ThoughtBot office. And we got along great. And I came in for my full day of pairing interview. And then I think I originally applied like, to be a full-time developer. I didn't know the difference between an apprenticeship and a full-timer. And so I was offered the apprenticeship. And I decided to do it. And I became an apprentice at ThoughtBot. Now, was that weird for you? It was sort of an experiment on our part where we were excited and knew where you were going to be in a few months, but felt like at the outset you weren't quite ready to be a full-time developer. Yeah, I think, I mean, I do think that there was a bit of me that felt weird about it because I knew some of my classmates had gotten full-time developer positions. I wasn't fully understanding, like, the nature of consulting, though, like, Consulting is different, right? Like, you can't just put a brand, especially at a company like ThoughtBot, where we kind of were like, everyone's the same. Like, you know, it's not like I would have become a junior consultant or something. Like, I would have been at the same level as anyone else, and I definitely was not ready to, like, enter in and confidently, like, meet with a client and give them technical advice. Um, So I think those three months were really helpful in getting up to speed on everything and feeling like, I knew enough about, like, the ThoughtBot way that I could be confident in those meetings, even knowing that, like, hey, I'm not the most experienced developer in the room. I remember during that time that you mentioned that some of your cohort people joined as full-time developers at different jobs, and they immediately felt pretty in over their heads. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember the first some people from the first cohort came and spoke to us when we started. And they almost, they all seemed, like, kind of depressed. And I remember being, like, so funny. It's, like, they went through this program, and it was so amazing, and they got jobs, and now they're, like, really down on life. But I think it's because all of them were just really in over their heads. It's, like, they were in month two as their first-time developers, first job, and feeling, like, wow, the expectations are, like, way up here, and I'm way down here. And, like, am I ever going to fulfill those expectations? So having lower expectations was awesome. Yeah, and then everything, you ended up becoming a full-time developer here at ThoughtBot. I did, yes. So, yeah, I started my apprenticeship in October, and then I started full-time in January. So that's, I mean, it's quite a journey from camp counselor through politics and possible waitressing all the way through to to marketing and, and being a developer. As you reflect on all of that what would you share with somebody who's in a similar position or looking to make similar changes or even maybe figure out how to think about what they should be doing for work well I think the first piece of advice would probably be that you shouldn't 
worry about figuring it all out at once. Like obviously I'm an example of somebody who had several jobs before they figured out what they wanted to do with their life. You know, like I didn't study something in school and college and then get a graduate degree. Like I actually remember, <laughs> maybe I should start with this. I had an interview when I was trying to make this transition. Like I think when I first started to be like, okay, I want to do the development thing, I met with several people. And I met with one CEO of a startup and I told her that I wanted to become a developer. And she kind of looked at me and she was like, but I, I was an undergrad CS major. I got my master's in computer science and I got my PhD in computer science. And then I was a developer. Like, how do you think you're going to do this? And I remember just being like, wow, when you put it that way. <laughs> You're right. How am I going to do this? But it's like, that is just such the wrong mentality. First of all, I don't know who in our office here and thought about San Francisco was a computer science major, but like, it doesn't matter to me. Like, yeah, there are some jobs where that does matter, but like general web development, that's not what you need. And I think a lot of people have this conception that like to do certain jobs, you need a certain educational background. And that might be true for some jobs, but for this job, all you need is like the practical skill set. So that is really good to know. And I guess the other thing is just, yeah, to not close too many doors unnecessarily, but also don't like leave them all open. Like at some point you have to kind of move forward. And I think for me, going to dev boot camp felt like this really big leap of faith. You know, if it didn't work out, not the end of the world, right? Like I had options, but I also felt like, wow, this is like, you know. I'm taking a chance here, and I'm really glad I did. You know, one of the best decisions I've made, probably, because I don't think without Dev Bootcamp, I would be where I am today. Like, I had a lot of experience going in, but I absolutely needed that push to get all the way to, you know, building out features in a web application as opposed to just following tutorials. So that was huge. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up. Great. Thanks for joining me, and good luck in the future. <laughs> we should definitely end with that. <laughs> good luck in the future. Next time on Reboot, I'll be talking to Jim Perry, a professional poker player who trained as a civil engineer and is now moving into data science. Today's show was produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Our theme music was produced by Don Okuda. You can find his work at soundcloud.com slash vanariel. Show notes can be found at rebootshow.fm slash three. And feedback is always welcome by email. You can send us feedback to hosts at rebootshow.fm or you can tweet us at rebootshow. Thanks for listening. Hey.